just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. My name is Johnny Ball and I am a professional coach, speaker and trainer and I have two big passions. One of them is public speaking presentation skills. The other is the tools of influence and persuasion. And with Speaking Influence, I get to marry those two passions and talk about them at great length with experts who I can bring on the show and we get to learn together along with them. We are venturing into some slightly new territory for the show in that I wanted to have a special Pride episode for Pride season. I don't talk about my own sexuality all that much during the show, except for perhaps occasionally mentioning my husband or really whenever it has been relevant. This time though, I wanted to have a conversation with someone who is prominent in the LGBTQ community and someone who is a speaker, a presenter, a host, who has some interesting things to say and who I think we can all learn a lot from. Now, Jordan Power is a professional comedian and I would say something of an uncompromising, unashamed podcaster who loves talking about issues that other people don't necessarily want to touch or talk about and perhaps are very much away from the mainstream. His new podcast, Unmentionable, is fantastic and having those kinds of conversations, they're super interesting and I would say he is a very forthright and funny guy If you are under 18 years of age or you are very sensitive to adult content, then this may not be the episode for you. Please do check out other episodes in the Speaking Influence catalog. You may be wondering about the name of the show. It has changed slightly from Speaking of Influence to now just Speaking Influence. This is a change I've been thinking of making for quite some time now. Finally have implemented it. Hopefully it won't affect you or the searchability of the show or any of your enjoyment pleasure. But Speaking Influence is now the official name of the show. And if you do want to check out the upgrades that I've been making to my website, take a look at presentinfluence.com and you'll see lots of new stuff up there and a much more slick and professional looking site thanks to the people at Superpass. I hope you'll enjoy this show with Jordan Power and also make sure you enjoy our future shows as well. And I'll tell you at the end of the show how you can support the show if you would like to be a part of Speaking Influence. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that's all about empowering tomorrow's influential speakers and leaders today. Many podcasters now agree that live streaming is the future of podcasting. If you want to get started with live streaming, my recommendation and the channel I use is Restream.io. Check the link in the show notes and after your first live stream, you will receive a $10 Restream cashback. So today on the show, we're taking a little bit of a different tack to how we might have done before. And we are speaking with a comedian and he has his own podcast. 
I've had a listen. It's very funny. And it does cater to a very particular audience. I'll let him tell you a bit more about that. But please welcome to Speaking of Influence, Jordan Powell. Hey, John. How are you? I'm really good. And I very much enjoyed getting to chat with you when we were discussing bringing you on the show. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be something a bit more, maybe a little bit more risque than maybe I've ever done on my show before. And I'm hoping it will. I hope we can get into some stuff that topics that I haven't touched on and uh, get an idea that there's, there's a lot more to presenting and being out there in the world than perhaps being a more sort of straight laced or mildly amusing person because you're podcast is hilarious and i know that you you are a professional comedian as well Mm -hmm. yeah i am i I mean i think it's good for you because you know that's where you grow outside your comfort zone right so you try new things and and that's very much the kind of comedy that i do is where i try to move outside that comfort zone i try to resist that moment in my mind where i say i shouldn't be touching this topic because it's traditionally taboo and i try to just push through that and i find in that uneasiness even my own uneasiness which probably doesn't come across on the mic Within that own uneasiness is where I grow as a comedian and where I I feel like it's like a spider web in my head. I start to explore new areas and push myself out to new areas. So, yes, definitely. As much as I don't, I seem like I'm very smooth or comfortable with all the topics on my show. A lot of that is me just getting through my own discomfort using the tool of comedy. Yeah. What made somebody like yourself decide that stand-up comedy was going to be a good avenue for you? I don't really have a choice. I'm sort of really like, you know, a nun would say it's their calling. It's sort of the same thing with me. I really don't have a choice. I wouldn't be in this business if I could, because comedy in the entertainment sphere is really the lowest rung. It's sort of considered low rent by a lot of people. And it's a very cruel business. It all, it makes you very exposed and naked and literally and figuratively. It just, it just sort of is not a wonderful business. You're in dark comedy clubs. People are drunk. It's just not the greatest environment. But for me, just there was a lot of life moments that really set me up to comedy. And I cleave to it like a coping mechanism where it's all that's gotten me through the craziest moments of my time, uh, my life, the darkest moments of my life. And just setting up in life, I'm a gay man with colitis. Colitis is a <laughs> disorder for anyone that doesn't know where you have open sores on your colon. So that alone set me up a sort of like, I call it like my life's a total troll right. <laughs> that God just sent me up, set me up for some troll. And then also one of the other things that's happened in my life that was my dad was a gay penis doctor growing up. So my dad was straight. But then we found out when I was around the age of 23 that he was gay. He had left the family computer open on a website called squirt.org. Your audience doesn't have to check it out. But I think, I, I, I think it, what's in a name? might give you an idea that I know where you're going here, but yeah. <laughs> yes. So that was the basis for my parents' divorce. Is they, it was, the impetus was that. And so I, through all these moments, through being teased brutally as a child, through various various abandonment by people i love and all the other stuff is i just kept trying to find a way to make sense of it to make sense of it all and i think my comedy and my books and my show my stand-up is just my way of saying it all has to mean something Mm. it had to all be for something it can't just be the randomness of the universe and so it's my way of saying well it was all so that i could hone this skill and that i could give others uh, a vacation and escapism from their own pain. There's a lot of power in comedy. It's, it's interesting, though, that you say it's like the lowest rung in the entertainment profession. I, I've never really 
considered it as that. And I wonder if other comedians, professional comedians, feel the same as you. Because in the public speaking world, which is where I sit mostly, being funny is something that elevates you above other speakers is considered to be essential. There's a, an old adage that goes something along the lines of, if, if you want to work as a, a public speaker, then just get, get up on stage. But if you want to be well paid for it and be brought back, then you need to be funny. And you know, the, right. it's, it's an essential part of being a successful speaker. So, so it's interesting to me that in the areas that you get up and perform and speak on a stage, that it's perhaps a bit different. Yeah, it's well, I think all performers have an innate insecurity, right? That we get up there and we feel we have to hear the claps and the laughs. And the comedian gets on stage and says, uh, laugh. I don't care if you laugh at me or if you laugh with me, just laugh. And I think because there's a dance there that's required between you and the audience, and sometimes that audience isn't going to go along with you on that dance, is that it can be very humiliating. Whereas if you say you're uh, a singer uh, or an actor, it's just a more glamorous job that doesn't require that necessarily immediate feedback or that dance between the two parties. But I think just the nature of it, the grind of it is, is just, it's, it's not a great environment. And you're also surrounded by people who have a lot of mental health problems. I say that in the form of other comedians, and I would include myself in that, right. is that you're around people like that. So there's so many toxic elements at once in comedy and but i will say i do agree with what you're saying is that it's such a it's such a powerful tool if you use it in the right environment meaning you mentioned my show is very let's say it's a certain specific kind of comedy and i would say i started with a fan base that was largely gay men because we're unshockable and that's just it only really works with a specific audience the kind of comedy i do so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that the way that we are treated is the feedback I get just from other entertainers is sort of like court jesters or low rent clowns. That's, that's interesting to me. One, one of the reasons why I've been so keen to speak with professional comedians on my show, and we've had quite a few on, is that influence and persuasion skills are probably seen that some of the best in, in comedy. It's one of the it's one of the areas of influence and persuasion that I think gets overlooked. There's a lot of people who talk in psychology about different ways of persuading people and influencing people. But I think humor has to be one of the best ones out there and probably rarely gets talked about because it's not generally as well studied. Although I know there are people who do, who professionally study humor, not just as comedians, but in, in academic life as well. What do you think about I think that? the first step in comedy is bravery, right? Because you're willing to say what others don't say. You hear a lot of comedians, and I do it very often on my show, as I say, but I'm not wrong, is that I'm willing to take the heat for whatever I say, but I also want everyone else to acknowledge that I'm more brave than them in saying the thing that's in their head. And that's what's so powerful about comedy is that it's involuntary, mm. meaning the member of the audience who who at home or with their friends would say, oh, my God, that's awful. I can't believe he said that. That's terrible. But that same person laughed in the front row. And so I would argue that that person's complicit. I would argue that they laughed because they knew I was right and they felt the truth in what I said. And then it just sort of came out. And they might catch themselves afterward and say, you know, I can't, I shouldn't have laughed at that or pull themselves back, but I was able to use this thing that 
brought them up on stage with me in a way is that I brought them into my bit and I locked them into what I was saying. And there was a moment there where they were agreeing with me. And I think that's, that's the first step is just like, I'm willing to take the social judgment and the stigma of the things I say to entertain you. And largely it's usually at any cost. And I think that's where I talk about sort of the insecurity is that like when everything's a bit and you see life as a bit and you see the absurdity of life, your mental health can, can suffer in a lot of ways because you don't take either yourself that seriously or you don't take life that seriously. I'm not sure that taking life, not, not taking life so seriously is a sign or symptom of a mental health issue. I think it's more, more the opposite in my experience that's true of taking yeah. life too seriously is where people start to come undone to some degree. And so sometimes the, whilst the absurdity of life is a lot for people to cope with sometimes, I think once you make your peace with that, or once you can be okay with it, that nothing really has any meaning except the meaning you give it. And I know a lot of people really struggle with that message when they start to think about it. But you can head down the path of nihilism and where it just throws you into a tailspin. Or I think you make that decision that you're going to make your life mean something and you decide what that purpose is going to be. We all need purpose. We all need some mission in life. And I think once you start giving yourself that, that tends to be where we find our fulfillment, where we find uh, where we fit into the world. That's, that's, that would be my take on it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with things that you're saying. I have this natural version to people that you that take themselves too seriously because I think I just know that I will never get along with them or they won't make up my fan base. But I do try to not descend into nihilism on my show because I just think that you'll end up impoverished just <laughs> economically. You have to be able to sell something for you. But I definitely think if you listen to my show, it's not like I'm not selling you hope. I'm selling you realism. And I try to temper if I go too dark or I try to go into certain areas, I try to temper that and pull people back because I think it's dissatisfying as a listener if I'm always kind of pulling you into the darkness and almost getting too real. To, I, I think people can only tolerate so much or only for small periods of time. So one of the tools I do is like, I'll pull you in and then I sort of pull you out. And my producer calls me on it. He said, you know, you, you emotionally manipulate people on your show from like super excited, super happy, super dark. And I don't even realize I'm doing it, but I think it's also just because I'm trying to make sure I don't lose the audience. And so part of me goes, okay, go back, go back. You can't stick on this for too long. Right. And so I'm constantly calibrating myself and watching where I go. But personally, my default place is is quite a dark place, the way I see the world. And I think a lot of comedians are like that. But if you if you met me or listened to my show, you might not necessarily get that vibe. But as a as a performer and as a professional comedian, particularly, you do know automatically that how people feel at the end of your set or your bit is very important and you want people to go away not sort of thinking oh i have to reconsider my whole life you want them to be laughing you want them to feel good at the end of yes. it right so yeah yeah it, that's been that's been lost on this generation it's just kind of with this you know i call it woke culture or just overreach over political correctness is that a lot of people have got into this business now especially younger generation generation z have gotten this business to be liked they entered this business to find an audience to be liked because they all want to be a star on TikTok or all these things. And I don't get into this business to be liked. I get into this business to entertain. And I always remind myself that like my job as the comedian is, is to entertain. And what goes along with that is not to 
align yourself with sort of like power centers or, you know, A-list celebrities or your, your, the comedian's role is sort of on the outside. And I always try to make sure, okay, I'm an outsider. I, I'm here for sort of the common people. I'm trying to call it like it is for them. Whereas I, I think that like when the younger generation, I, I see them perform, they don't take any risks. And consequently, they don't get any guttural laughs. Right. And when you get guttural laughs, that's a memorable comedian to you is that like, I entertained you, I made you laugh. That's all that matters. And I think if you don't have people in this business, if you don't evoke sort of strong reactions from people, you won't be memorable. Meaning if you're never hated by certain people, you're never also going to find the people that will love you. Are, are there particular figures in the comedy world who stand out for you as being the your heroes or heroines? My style is very much a combination of my heroes. Joan Rivers definitely is one of them. I learned so much technically from Joan Rivers as an as a joke writer. You know, set up punchline, tag, tag. What's funny here? I also learned from really studying her is the fact that like it, you always have to be on. You can't just phone it in every time. So she would prepare for everything. So I love her attitude. I love Louis C.K. I think Louis C.K. is one of the greatest storytellers of all time. I really analyzed. I actually watched a YouTube video yesterday about how his comedy works and his turn of phrase and what makes his comedy punch is that he'll do the setup and then the punchline. And then within his tags, for anyone listening doesn't know, a tag is like an additional punchline that you just keep tagging on for more laughs. I actually tend to do too many tags and keep trying to grab more laughs from the audience. But within his tags, he'll have very specific comedy phrasing mm -hmm. that he, it's an art form. Every word he uses is very specific to keep you in the moment or sort of evoke something. And so I love, if you really study his storytelling, I love just the little things he had. Like he was talking a story, talking about a story about Monopoly with his daughter. And he was talking about how she's, she eventually it sucks for her because she's going to lose and it's going to be dark. But he, he added in when he was explaining it, something like, her inevitable demise and just adding like that inevitable demise just punches up your tag so much more. And so I've really tried to get granular with my comedy when I perform it, or especially, you know, I have a comedy book that I wrote and very much in that is I, I worked and worked and worked on every word to keep punching it. So that's something I've learned from him. And then I love Dave Chappelle because for me, Dave Chappelle is even on the stuff that he does ad lib, he's just effortless. And there's always something to be learned in, in effortless comedy because very much on my show, what I was realizing in the beginning is I was writing so many bits and trying to perform them on the show while looking at my laptop. And I realized that it was coming across as rehearsed, but also that I really needed to just have the premise of the bit and work it out on the show because it works out the muscle so that when you get in a comedy club, you can do crowd work. That you, cause you're not just gonna, most comedians don't just get up there and do their set. There's a little bit of crowd work. So I work that muscle of kind of that. So I study, I've studied Dave in that respect, but I, I, I would say honestly, like 99% of comedians don't really do it for me because I just have started to see the trick coming. Yeah. And it's like a magician performing and you know what's about to come and then it ruins it for you. So any comedian that can really divert me off my course and take me in an area I didn't think I was going to go, those are the ones that I gravitate towards. You end up being a bit hard to impress now because of your insight into the industry, I guess. <laughs> yes. And I, I, I predictable comedy for me bothers me and also like bad comedy really bothers me. And I think it's because I see myself at 28 and I go, oh, God. 
like I can't even believe I thought that was good. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I was I some years back I auditioned to go on The Apprentice UK, and whilst it was an I did it for the experience. I honestly didn't think for a minute that I would get chosen to go on it. I just thought it would be an interesting experience. And whilst I was there, I met some fascinating people in the queue, and most of them, most of the people who were auditioning for the show had agents. You know, it wasn't like they were just regular people from the public. And I already had a bit of a sense that probably people who get selected, they they knew exactly what they wanted, but they auditioned all sorts of people anyway, just in case. And one girl who I was speaking with in the queue there whilst we were waiting to go into the audition. She worked in production and she was saying that, that one of the things that they have the biggest problem with in the UK is finding good comedy. And yet probably most of the output that they try and put out is humorous or funny programs other than reality TV. They try and put out a lot of humorous content, but most of it is just huge misses and, and really not funny, like very basic comedy that there's still a large portion of people who will watch that and be quite content with it. But anybody who wants something a bit more elevated or that you have to think about or clever, funny, there's not a lot of that there. Yeah, I think that's a byproduct of the culture right now. I think the, they call them soft sets in comedy. A soft set is when you just you either placate or you're out there to make a political point that's not really there's nothing there, meaning you say trans rights are human rights. Well, I would say probably 80% of the population agrees with that. And there's nothing there you're really saying. But whereas Dave Chappelle did a whole bit on his stand-up special about the schism between the LGBT community, between trans people and gay people and, and the different things like that. So it's, it's really a byproduct of woke culture. But I think that I am among a certain class of comedians that won't compromise. And I, I have had, we've, we've had conversations with that is, is that like, I don't think we'll ever be the ones that will be the darling of network TV or be given a show or be on SNL or those kind of things, just because we don't play that game. But I also think you will build a rabid fan base because you stand out now, because if 90% of people are going the Uber woke PC route, sanitized comedy, then if you're the small group of people that's willing to, you know, do comedy like it was 15 years ago, then I think that you um, will survive. And that's been the feedback that I've gotten from a lot of people and the comedians that I love who've built a fan base on the Internet instead of SNL or traditional mainstream media. That's the feedback that they've gotten. It's just like finally someone willing to give me comedy that actually makes me gutturally laugh and doesn't just say nothing or doesn't have layers to it. Yeah, isn't just trying to say what's correct or, or tell you what to think is yeah, a bit more challenging. Yeah, I, I think exactly. there's always going to be a market for that. It's, uh, it's, it has been interesting. I'm talking about UK TV because I have more of an ex experience with that than I do with US and other countries. But there was a there's a very popular TV show in the UK. It's like a comedy panel show called QI. And... One of the reasons why it nearly didn't end up getting commissioned at all was because it's intelligent. It requires a, a level of intelligence to get the answers right. It's be become a very funny show, but it's almost based on a sort of encyclopedic level of knowledge. And people thought, at the producers thought it would be boring. And yet, because it's, it is clever a lot of it and you do often have to think about it and come up with answers that are just not what you would expect you know that the obvious answer is always going to be the wrong one that 
pe- people love it and it has a huge following. Maybe not as much as other more mainstream shows, but it has a very committed and loyal following because people want to feel challenged. They want to feel that their intelligence is being respected as well for, for those people who it matters to. So I think you'll always have an audience for that kind of humor. Yeah, the average person is watching The Masked Singer or like, uh, I always say to people like, don't mistake if someone has a lot of following that the product they're putting out is good. Meaning like Sarah Palin has a lot of fans. <laughs> she's millions of people that love her, right? But that doesn't mean that, that she's the most intelligent person. I think she's well, proven that. Unless she turns um, out to actually be a comedian and this whole thing has been a stick the whole way along. I. I would respect yeah, that very much if it was all just a troll <laughs> at this point. And it honestly, it very much could be. I think it's more just like trying to grab money and power yeah. for a temporary period of time because I don't think this stuff has legs. But yes, I understand what you're saying. I, I actually think I have very much that kind of an audience is that they stuck around. I mean, they, they, my old show was called Shame on You. It was a gay podcast and they knew what they were getting and I had built that base. But what's really uh, encouraging about my new show is that the audience is very broad, meaning I can tell by the people that follow me on Instagram, you know, I get a, let's say five followers, new followers a day. And I can tell that among those people, I have a huge range of people, socioeconomic, by race and just all kinds of people I didn't ever think would follow me. But I think at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, are you funny? And we can get over everything else if we're, you know, if, if I'm homophobic and a gay guy never made me laugh, well, is, Jordan might be the first gay, gay guy that made me laugh. And then suddenly I'm like, hey, gay people aren't that bad. And it's a unifier in that sense is that a gay person entertained you and now you understand them. And I noticed with other gay podcasts why they weren't successful is that they could never reach beyond the inside baseball of what they were doing, meaning it was very difficult for them to bring in a different kind of audience because they were just... I call it like a circle jerk. It's just basically like saying the same talking points over and over. And there were no, there wasn't comedy there. So there's nothing relatable to the outside audience besides the kind of men that they were appealing to, which was just high income earners in Toronto. Mm. I want to talk about your podcast in a moment, but before we do, I want to ask you about your, your first ever comedy gig. The first time you ever got up on a stage to do comedy, like how was it? How did you prepare for it? What happened? Oh, it was bad. I took a comedy. So in my life, I had a lot of traumatic life events and the only way that I ever dealt with them was like I mentioned earlier, was just comedy, right? So I would just find a way to find something funny about that. And a lot of that was actually making my sister Lauren laugh because she was along for the ride, meaning my parents divorce or various, various other family issues that we had. And so she loves dark comedy. And so I would try to make her laugh. And then I built a friend base that also had similar kind of views on comedy. And I took a class, a comedy class. And I remember I couldn't even find the comedian on Google. And I thought, oh, this is a red flag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're notably absent from Google. And it's like that whole thing, those who can't do teach. And so I took the class and it was everyone. I wouldn't say anyone in the class was particularly funny, but they were just trying it out for a skill. And I was one of them. And uh, we had to write a set. We had to write a five minute set and perform it at a comedy club. That was like the final exam. And uh, you would bring some friends and it was a whole thing. And I remember I, I was trying to, I thought shockable. I thought shocking made people laugh, but also sometimes when you a joke's too gross, it doesn't work because people just make this no noise. 
So I was doing all these jokes and they were really hardcore jokes and they weren't working with the class. So the night before the comedy set, I just rewrote my whole thing. I just rewrote the whole, I'd been working on it for six weeks with the teacher, you know, say this, say this. And I rewrote the whole thing. And I remember I just absolutely killed on it, but I had rewrote it in one night. And then I, that was the biggest lesson for me. I was like, just, you're a naturally funny person. Just be funny. Like you're, you're trying too hard. I was yeah. trying too hard to be Sarah Silverman or shocking comedians. And, but the whole experience is just like, there is absolutely nothing more difficult. I've started businesses. I've spoken to 5,000 people about those businesses. I have uh, gone through brutal personal struggles in my life. There is nothing harder than comedy. It is an absolutely terrifying experience. You get up there. It looks like there's a truck coming at you because the lights are so bright. You can barely see the audience. It's sort of a blur. You don't know where to stand. You don't know where to look. Your back is kind of stiff. You're you're almost scared to deliver the punchline because that's your whole thing. You set up to the punchline. If the punchline fails, you're going to hear nothing. And that's devastating. Yeah. And and so you have to work through that several times. And, and I just sort of hone my act to be like the person I am on the microphone because I found podcasting and being funny on the mic very easy. So I just sort of taught myself, well, it's just an extension of this. Just get up there. You're funny on the mic. Just deliver that to the audience. And I got a lot better by that. It's just sort of, I got up there like, here, here's my bit from the podcast. And I know you guys are, are all here because you like me. But where it gets harder is then once you venture outside your fan base. Because a lot of comedians, I want to build the fan base and just perform for them because it feels good. But once you venture outside that fan base, that's where it gets a little dicey because the people don't know you. They don't know your voice. They don't know your bit. They don't know your angles. And that gets a lot harder to perform. And that's why even the best comedians will completely bomb. Like you'll have Louis C.K. do a bit or Dave Chappelle do a bit of comedy club and bomb. And so you just have to get used to the fact that you're going to bomb and it's going to feel terrible, but it motivates you to get better every time. But there's no worse feeling than bombing. Like there's, it's just, it's all your hard work. It's like going up there, all your hard work put out, and then you just completely bomb. And you even have a moment, you're like, am I, should I even be doing this? Is there even something here? Despite your your resume, right? Mm -hmm. You just go up there and you, it can kill you in that mere moment. And I think probably that's just the insecurity of the comedian. It's, it's interesting because in the public speaking world, it's hard to bomb. Even if you get up on a stage and do a pretty bad job, people don't necessarily consider it as bombing. They just maybe think you're not a great speaker. And unless you're being, unless you're being paid to do an event and you really fuck it up, then you're not going to, you're not really going to bomb. You, you'd have to go way out. And yet in comedy, you're not bombing if you're not, you know, you're bombing if you're not getting the laughs. If you haven't made that connection with your audience, then you're not doing, you know, you're not doing what you've gone there for. And yet it's so easy to do a set you've done one night might be fantastic with one audience and then the next night just not hit at all. And that could happen in public speaking, but it's nothing like on the same level. No. And, and I think it's, it's interesting because like you said, the same audience, well, one of the things that a lot of comedians do is they have a great joke. It's like a great setup punchline, but they haven't worked the audience through the premise long enough. And so I can go up and do a joke for people because they understand the premise or the reference. But if I don't set it up properly for the, you know, straight blue collar 55 year old guy who comes to my show, 
then there's no way he's going to even understand the punchline. Mm. And so like public speaking, there is a, there's a dance you have to do. And very much you need to explain, you need to get people through the premise and get them to a certain point before you drop the punchline on them. And so I think when comedians bomb, a lot of the time it's because they didn't bring the audience along with them and they didn't set it up properly and they didn't ground the audience in what was happening. And okay, so I was here and this and this and this, and you know that thing and blah, blah, blah. If you don't do that properly, then it doesn't matter how good your punchline is or your tags. You're just completely going to bomb. So like that is you just, I think of the who, what, where, why, and when. You've got to get through that initially in your premise and your setup to then drop the bomb. And so I, I try to get really technical on the premise if I know that the punchline is great. Mm. What do you do in regular life, day-to-day life to keep growing and expanding, creating new material? Do, do you have a daily writing practice or do you record stuff every day? Other than the podcast, what do you do? So right now I'm doing about three podcasts a week plus my own. It's too much talking. It's <laughs> a lot. Yeah. So I I do that to get more fluid on the mic and work on my broadcasting skills. In terms of actual writing, I have a notepad in my phone. I actually, my, my producer just got me onto a thing called Google Keep, which is apparently a lot better for this. But I truly have a notepad in my phone that I use and I will put probably three to four premises or jokes a day in the phone, just things I noticed. Like I wrote, I wrote one yesterday, just something about like how I think there's a bit around how funny it is to be body positive right now when there's 38 year old fat people dying of COVID. Right. right? <laughs> like it's just, it's an absurd time to just, it's almost just not the right time to be body positive. And then I want to explore how denialism works and how I have my own denialism and I can get that and I can relate to that and, and stuff like that. And then I just, this is another one I wrote yesterday. I said, some people in your life are like dogs and that they just never learn. And that's the premise of like my dog. And I, and I think there's a funny bit here is that like my dog will just eat this crabgrass all day long. My dog will just eat, keep eating the crabgrass. And when he eats the crabgrass, he pukes every time. So because he's a dog, he doesn't understand that when I do A, B happens. Yeah. And so he just keeps in this, is this, he keeps looking at me. I, I'm like, you're going to puke, you're going to puke. And then he pukes, but he never learns. And so I do think there's people in your life that are also like that, is that they just never learn. They're like the mouse in the maze that keeps going for the cupcake and getting zapped right. in the science experiment. And so that was a kind of the premise. And I was like, well, certain people are like that with other compulsions in their life. So that's what I'm constantly doing. But I think the sickness and the torture of being a comedian is that almost that I look in the, I look at the world in a very unique way. And I almost feel like it's a simulation and that I cannot believe what's happening, particularly now with social media and the things I see of people, you know, going to get their Pfizer shot in a prom dress, wearing a sash that says Mrs. Pfizer. I just sort of look at, I, wow. I mean, I look at this and there's a lot of content right yeah. now, right? But you do kind of feel like sometimes you're going crazy or that you don't fit in. or And so I, that's what I do is I just write bits in my phone. I will take them out. I will do my show. I'll have the bits and I'll have little punchlines in there. Like I did one yesterday about people who tweet at Fortune 500 companies with three followers and think that the, that that matters. And I just want to do a whole bit like you don't matter is kind of this premise. Right. That like if they're going to answer anyone on Twitter 
who's at Air Canada. I can't, I'm never flying with you again. If they're going to answer anyone, it's going to be Lady Gaga and they're not even going to get down to you for a while. <laughs> and, and so I have, I have bit like, bits like that, but what I'll do is I'm going to do them on the show. I'll just put bullet points underneath that and more and more tags like, okay, so then why is that funny? And then I'll usually do imagery. So the, so I, you think of the CEO of Spotify it goes through the numbers and says, oh my God, Joe Rogan's doing great for us, this and this and this. Oh wait, I just got a tweet from this fat housewife in Ohio saying this. And then the premise would be like, why Why is it like the idea that he would respond to that and he would cancel Joe Rogan and change the whole company. So there's always ways you can just keep going in the web. And the best way to do that is like basic psychology, like therapy is you just keep asking why. Mm. So the question is, is like, why is that funny? Well, then the CEO could say this. Okay. But then what would he say after that? Well, why would he say that? And then you just keep going and going and going. And that's how you take the audience through a story and the various ways you can go. But you have to watch yourself because once you start getting too, I call it spider web, you start going too much is eventually the audience is just, it's disarray and they're lost. Right. So that's what they call like tightening the comedy is just how far are we going to go or when are we going to pull them back? So I do. So the circuitous way of answering that is, is I just put bits in my phone. I probably have anywhere close to five to 6,000 bits in my phone right now. And what I'll do is sporadically, I'll just go in and I'll delete ones that make absolutely no sense that I probably wrote when I was stoned Mm -hmm. and that, or I'll grab certain ones out and then put them in a Microsoft Word document and then start going through the the bits and the whys and where can we go with this and and that and i would say 90% of it is garbage i would say 90% of it could never be performed right. on a mic or anything like that and i will never show anyone that but when i wrote my book famous anus there was let's say the book was 270 pages i would say there was probably a unique joke on almost every page and a lot of those were jokes i had written a long time ago like one of them was like how do you study for an hiv test and so I would have that joke. And then the, the idea is like, how do I get that into the book somehow? Because I love that joke. And so it was this dance I did when I was writing the book is the best way to put jokes in is dialogue. So what I would do is I would say, I would sort of make up conversations that I had with the person and then find the way to insert jokes. But going through the editing process, my editor really called me out of being like, okay, like you're trying to be a joke. You're trying to fit all these jokes in and you're trying to just impress the audience with your joke writing. But at the same time, you, you're really taking away from the storytelling and the writing and the experience of the reader. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to do it, but I'm, I'm trying to get, as you, as you get like quicker, you can write more jokes on the fly. So yeah. you'll, if you listen on unmentionable, you'll notice that I, I, I do write jokes on the fly and my producer said they're usually better jokes. So I found that interesting too. So the spontaneity, because your brain gets used to working in particular ways. I want to come back to what you were mentioning about how you see the world, because when you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, I get that. I get that you might feel that almost a bit detached from it, like reality isn't really reality. And I think we can all feel like that at times. And I think when we feel like that the most is when we're observing and deconstructing. So when you start asking yourself, why, why is that happening? I think I first discovered that as a thing when I was at university and part of my degree, I had to write a dissertation and I was using some films and comparisons to books to write about. I saw about postmodernism. It was all very interesting. And uh, what I realized was when I was watching films from a analysis perspective from deconstructing them, I just couldn't enjoy them. 
I, I just couldn't. Mm. And as soon as you start asking yourself, well, why? Why is this happening? Or why are they doing that? Or why are we seeing it in this way? You start to deconstruct the whole film and think, oh, you actually give everything away. Everything is sig telegraphed and signaled to you in advance. And it's very hard to enjoy it when it's very obvious what's going to happen next. And I had a guest on my show quite a while back, but a very interesting guest who was talking about storytelling and saying similar kind of thing of when you understand how story works, you know what's coming next. And it's similar to what you were saying with, with a lot of humor. When you understand how jokes work and how humor works, you will very often see what's coming next. And I think when you get to that sort of perspective, when you're, when you're observing it rather than in it and you're deconstructing it and you're in an analysis position, the world looks very different. Whereas most people are just living their lives in the moment, ha having the experience and don't very often take those moments to step back and consider what's really going on or why it's going on. I think that's often the difference to me between people who get it and people who don't is the people who are able to take a step back sometimes and see the big picture. Yeah, but I can't tell if I'm mindful or not, meaning like I'm maybe so sick as a comedian that I'm like, for example, those people you're talking about going through the motions of life, right? They're just kind of existing and going through life and they, they're unquestioning, right? They're just going through the motions. I'm almost questioning too much and therefore I can't be mindful and just enjoy the experience. So like I'm camping and it's supposed to be this amazing experience, but I'm in my head, I'm thinking about why it's not. And I'm trying to be the natural contrarian and my friends are just experiencing camping and I'm going like, this is absurd and blah, 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 blah. And I'm always just thinking why everything's absurd. I think my comedy is social observation. I took a test when I was a young kid and I've started businesses. I've done things in my life. People said, oh, you're a smart guy. But I took a test when I was a kid and like most of the intelligence categories, I was a little bit above average, but my social intelligence category was through the roof. And I think that's very much what my comedy is, is very much it's social observation of just people, how they behave, what they post on social media, why they're doing it, the psychology of people. And it's interesting because the other uh, arm of my life is I started a marketing company. Well, marketing is just the psychology of people and trying to hook them and trying to trying to package things for them. And so mine is just so I just go through life as a general social observation of, of feeling like everything is is absurd and <laughs> not how I would envision a, a perfect world. Right. And and I've gone that route. And as I've gotten more and more down that route and hopefully smarter with the comedy, I, I realized I found more and more absurdities in life that like I had this guy was posting on social media and he was going off about Elon Musk being bad and this and this and his lithium with his car and i and i find there's where i find the comedy because i go oh oh your 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 hypocrisy is hilarious is that you like to use oil that's from the iraq war that was based on a false premise where a million people had to die so you could drive your range rover but you're perfect or you're tweeting this on your iphone that was made on slave labor yeah. but you're perfect and so i find that i try to deconstruct the hypocrisy of people and and show them with a mirror and myself included their faults <laughs> and and where and their evident hypocrisy and and that's what i think is is my comedy it's just sort of showing people that we're all ridiculous this is a wicked ride it's it's out of control i don't know what's happening but just kind of enjoy it and laugh with me yeah so it's, it's almost like you're in therapy 
getting up on the stage yeah. and talking about this stuff is like a way of coping with it and dealing with all the absurdities. It's the only way I can make sense of it all, truly. It's the only way I can stop myself from stressing about climate change and socioeconomic issues and stuff like that. The only way I can do it is is to use comedy and to just laugh about it. And a lot it turns off a lot of people because they go, oh my God, how can you how can you laugh about this? And I'm like, no, I'm not laughing about the Iraq war. I'm laughing that you know, we were told it was bin Laden, but then we just went into Iraq instead of Afghanistan. Right. Like, and everybody, and everybody just, you know, said, okay, and just had their dinner. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that they're just unquestioning when the government started spying on people, people just said, eh, so what? I think that's the part of is the lack of engagement from people is, is what's interesting to me. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, different categories of people. There's the people who are like sociopathic, psych- psychopathic, no empathy and there's the people who are very high empathy and somewhere in between the vast majority of people come into the apath level where they will go along with whatever's easiest whatever doesn't rock the boat uh, and whatever keeps that keeps the world turning kind of thing yeah path of least resistance and i also think that i wonder why more people don't care about the things that i care about or the things that i read about in terms of just the environment and stuff like that. And and that's to me is we talk about this, this feeling of being alone and just sort of thinking like everything's a simulation is that like the things that people fret about in their everyday life, the juxtaposition of that and the things that I know about the environment, like, I'll you know, someone will be talking about this and I'll be like, hey, there's going to be like Glacier National Park in America is going to have no glaciers in 10 years or we're going to have no reefs in 10 years. And like, I'm telling these things and people are just, they don't care. And I think it's that they don't want to even think about it or they don't even want to go there. And they're mostly mostly just considered with paying their mortgage, going through the rat race. And that's fine. And I honestly think a lot of the time ignorance is bliss. A lot yeah. of people that aren't engaged in life are happier people. I have dated people that are very stupid. <laughs> and I got to tell <laughs> you, they're too. very happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ignorance just, is bliss. That's for sure. It is bliss. And, uh, Absolutely. Knowledge they're, is a curse. Just, yeah. Like I had this, I dated this guy and I remember he would just, he just would fret about the stupidest things. And I, I just got, kept getting so angry because I was, I would just be like, he would say something and I'd be like, we just blew up a Pakistani wedding yesterday with a drone. And he just like, th- he, he, he couldn't even conceptualize. Well, uh, you know, he, they're keeping us safe or like the Iraq war is about keeping us safe or all the other wars are about keeping us safe or the CIA doesn't assassinate democratically elected leaders and they don't spy on their citizens and drug their citizens. I mean, these things are all factually indisputable that I've known. And you tell people and they're, you know, vast majority of the people just, so what? And so I've, I've kind of got to the place where I, I'm like, it's not that I don't care, but I'm just like, when I cared, no one cared. Mm-hmm. So the only way I'm going to make sense of it all is just to use, to make comedy and, and make a career out of it. So I'm, I'm assuming that guy was a level of hotness that made up for the lack of intelligence. Yeah. Absolutely. That's how it always works, right? You get, Isn't you get just... a little bit of latitude with your, with your hotness. Yes, I'm sure. And I'm sure no one else demanded that of him. And I think with those people, you have to kind of just break up with them because it's like you, uh, are trying to make them into a person they're not. And that's an inquisitive person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, that's just not in all people. And they sort of see you as like a bother. Oh, why are you always, you're so negative. Or why are you like <laughs> going there? And and so you just have to get away from those people. So I've built an audience that I think is also has a level of intellectual curiosity like me about certain subjects. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. And I think that's also a very highly engaged audience. I think that's a loyal audience. I think that's the kind of audience I could have for 30 years. Yeah, definitely. 
I do want to ask you, I hope you're okay for time and stuff, but I do want to ask you about your podcast, of course. And uh, you, it was interesting to me when we spoke a little about your first podcast, Shame On You, because of the reasons that you started it particularly. Yeah, we started it. It's called Shame On You because the idea was how do we get rid of the residual shame we have as gay men? When you're gay, you usually have some sort of stymied emotional development when I got into the gay community, I came out around 23. I just felt like I was in a zoo. The amount of personality disorders and triggers and substance abuse issues. And I would date people that didn't have any of the skills to forge love and myself included. And so I, that was my way of doing that show. As I said, well, how do I get rid of that residual shame? Well, to do that is just like brutal mass exposure of all your vulnerabilities and just putting it all out there. And I think our show in a lot of ways was like the first gay show that really pushed through a lot of comfort zones. We were vulgar. We were, it was extremely raw, gritty kind of show. We interviewed people we had sex with. We interviewed drug addicts. We interviewed a gay priest. It was just this exercise and just radical self-disclosure yeah. that we went through. And it was such a fascinating and brutal experience. But it took off. In the first week, I think we had 100 downloads, and then it doubled to 200. And by the first month, we were at like almost 1,000. Then it just kept doubling over and over. And uh, word of mouth was just, it was like a contagion. <laughs> it just kept going. And it became this massive thing. It was downloaded millions of times. We sold out shows in New York City, in Toronto, and I parlayed that into my book, Famous Anus, which is just a continuation of that. But it, it came at a huge personal cost to me. When you're mining your personal life for content, you become a sideshow. Right. And you also feel like you're obligated to constantly perform and to constantly create drama and make something interesting about you. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting show. We went through two breakups on that show. My dad died. Our friendship was declining. There was just drama, drama, drama every week. You know the case, <laughs> <laughs> naturally. Sure. So our, our friendship suffered. We, we were best friends for nine years. We're no, we don't even speak anymore for a multitude of reasons. But but I, 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 wouldn't, I, I don't regret doing the show. It was great. But I think also I took five months afterwards to think about what I wanted to do. And I just thought like, well, I'm bored with a single, single themed show. And it doesn't really, it felt sophomoric. In a lot of ways, I mean, listen, unmentionable sophomore, but it also dives into more mature themes. Yeah. And I'm not constrained by having to pump to just talk about gay issues at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, honestly, sex became boring to me. It was really largely a sex podcast. And, and every day it was just it just became boring. It became routine. And I didn't like the way people treated me. I didn't like the people, way people talk to me as a product. People would come up to me and be like, "Hey, you whore!" Like it just—it didn't—it didn't feel like it was in—I was in control at, at any point. And so, my new show, Unmentionable, is—I want to hear from the people you don't traditionally hear from in society. So, the people that aren't on the mainstream uh, news, I—I want to give them a platform. And I think that's kind of in the same theme of shame on you—is that we consider ourselves aberrants and outsiders. And so Unmentionable is a very counterculture show. And so I have people on, like I had on an illegal immigrant. I had on, I've had on strippers, porn stars. I've had on a girl that burps for $4.99 a month on OnlyFans. There's a market for that. Wow. And 
Yeah, I want to have on people that you just, they're all from all political affiliations and stuff, but they're just people who are counterculture and are giving you something completely different. I had on a business owner that just, the government said, you got to close your salon. And she just said, no. And so I think that's fascinating. So that's the, that's the new show. And I, hopefully it's something I can do for say 30 years and it's a different kind of audience. And, and I think it will build a, a different kind of fan base and probably a larger fan base for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and while we're checking out, you're a, a great presenter and an interesting guy to listen to. And you, the humor is very easy on, on your show from what I've listened to. And I know I've still to go back and listen to the end of the story of how you ended up sleeping with a straight guy. I know that was from your first podcast, but I, I still need to get to the, get to that story. So. With with the shows that you're doing now and everything that you're doing professionally, do you do you see podcasting as being the main part of your career, or are you still drawn back to the stage? I mean, they're just they're, it's so funny because it, it it is being funny on a microphone, but they're just so different. I like stage. I like immediate feedback. I like talking to people like meeting people i like we live in such a dystopian virtual culture now that like i don't think any of this is healthy for our minds and so i like to meet people and shake their hand and take a photo with them and they're usually really nice people i'm almost all the people i've met that are fans of mine are are nice people and you know that's encouraging Mm. but i think podcasting is largely going to replace what is traditional cable television i didn't even think when people started i put our show on youtube but like at the end of the day 90 percent of the audience listens but there is there are people that put it on their television every week like it's a late night show because i think those shows are failing and i think their audience there's nothing real about it. There's nothing real about two highly privileged people sitting down and talking about the time they went to Barbados and it's unrelatable to people. And so I think a lot of the internet shows are really going to re- replace that. So I think having a professional studio and everything I've done really sets us up for the next 10 years with something that could eclipse that. And But stand up for me is something that's that's the scale I have to work at the most. Meaning I'm always trying to get better as a broadcaster but i think podcasting and book writing have got me to a level where it's pretty sufficient Mm -hmm. my stand-up is something that i think i really need to work on and my stand-up is is different from my podcast it's it's tighter whereas my podcast you listen it's 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 more ranty i would say (laughs) It's, it's good to have a rant it's often funny as well so do you do you find i was curious do you find people in your life are uh, perhaps a bit more wary of you because you use your own life and a lot of your material sorry just plugging in my computer so yes i i think that was one of the reasons why i really wanted to end my old podcast is just from a romantic perspective meaning men were absolutely terrified of me and for good reason i was literally recapping my dates every week in graphic detail but I knew that's what I signed up for, right? I think I'm very much into like, don't complain about something if you signed up for it. And so I signed up for that, but I knew that it wasn't sustainable. But I think there's lines I, I will not cross because to me, there's some things that are just not worth the laugh. Meaning if my friends or my close friends or my family asked me not to talk about something, I wouldn't. I haven't really had those. I really haven't had a lot of people say, I can't believe you told that story or this and that. I've had people that I haven't talked to in a long period of time get angry with me, especially about my book. Like when my book came out, I changed my number Wow! because I talked about five different guys I dated and I knew they would all, the book's been sold by thousands of times. So I knew I would hear from them. <laughs> so I just avoid that. But I think at the end of the day, as long as I'm being truthful legally <laughs> from a legal perspective and an ethical perspective, 
uh, I think as long as I'm being truthful, then I don't really have a lot of fault in it. But I don't want to humiliate people that didn't sign up for this business. I'm not like a sadist. I just want to, I'll humiliate myself. But when appropriate, I change identifying details when I can. But of course, listen, I'm going to piss people off because that's just the kind of comedy I do. I really social observation largely from my own life. Yeah. I, I wonder then with with that, with the way things work out for you, whether whether you think that you might put a, a stronger focus on the podcasting where you can put the attention onto more onto other people, perhaps. Yeah. So I, yeah, you're right. It's internal versus external, right? So shame on you was like a comedy can become self-obsession. And I think that's the unhealthy part of it is with shame on you. I was obsessed with myself and my life and the people I was dating and everything I was going through. Whereas with unmentionable, I try to go outwards. And so that's why we play a lot of clips and we talk about a lot of news stories. I mean, there's always some absurdity in the news. I usually actually pull my stories from British tabloids. Uh, <laughs> they always where did, I get yeah. like, yeah, that's where I get like crazy people. Like I had a girl on, I just interviewed her. She'll be Friday's episode. She's a financial dominatrix and she humiliates men on, then they send her money and they get off on that. Wow. And so I read that story in the British tabloid. So that's where I pull the content. And then obviously there's natural comedy in there for me that I can just kind of jump off from. So I do a lot more of that, but obviously I'm still going to default to oh my God, this happened today with this Uber driver, this and this and life. And I'm going to make some enemies along the way. And I mean, it's, it's what you sign up for. I think the comedians that stri- like a, have an aversion to that, they don't end up doing well yeah. because they are, anyone who's risk averse in life doesn't tend to succeed. Like people who have a fear-based existence where they're motivated by their fear and their anxiety, I find those people tend to not uh, go far in life. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite episodes of my own show was uh, bringing on a, a lady who's now become a good friend. But one of the most interesting or personal things about her is that she's a former dominatrix. And she now utilizes that in her public speaking and, and talking about the dominatrix energy and stuff like that. Uh, Dana, her name, and she's a, a really wonderful person. But when I first got introduced with her to her, even though I have no sexual interest in dominatrix, uh, um, I was absolutely fascinated. I, I really wanted to know everything. I, I'm, I'm not into that world at all, but it was so interesting to, to talk to and hear about that. And I guess that's the, the sort of things that those subjects are fascinating for anyone who likes to know how people tick and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I've had like people say on my show that I'm a good interview. Like they say, oh, you're a good interviewer when you had it. Because we had on this guy on my show. If anyone wants to check out this episode, it's called Baldo. And it was actually a guy from the UK that ma- made the world's first ball dildo. And he was doing international press about it. Ball dildos, it was like, I, I love it describing you, it. Like you need, to, t- I, I need to explain it. I'm, I'm trying to. You put your balls in this contraption and then you penetrate your partner with the balls. There's something about your, your British accent that doesn't make me want to say fuck because <laughs> you guys are so proper. I already said it once on the, on the show. You can no, say I know. It. But it's like I, I said a bit on my show that it's funny when you have sex. Uh, like I said, British people are funny in bed and they don't realize it because it's like such a posh, demure accent. And then you're in bed with them and they say something filthy to you. Like I was sleeping with this guy in the UK and he started saying, oh, you fucking whores and something, something like that. And I just started laughing. Because it's it's sending my brain two messages at once, meaning like butler and like whore. And they, they just weren't working for me. And so I just started laughing about it. But anyway, the ball dildo is you put your balls in it and you fuck your partner. And then he had a ball gasm. That's where he could orgasm from his penis without 
touching his, his penis at all. Okay. And, and so we had him on the show and my friend said, Oh, there was such a good interview. And I said, well, it was a good interview because I was genuinely curious. Yeah. I'm really just coming at it from a, being a, I wouldn't say a fan, but I'm just an interested party. Yeah. So I'm coming from it as like, okay, why, why, where, how I'm just asking the questions. And I think those are, like you said, it's one of your favorite interviews because it's like, you're, genuinely curious you're not trying to extract some sort of information it makes a lot of difference you're just a yeah this is and so i naturally have guests that are wild and are zany and i had a guy on who's the world's biggest sperm donor he's got 82 children and he's called the sperminator and so i was just coming into that with you know 500 questions in my head yeah. about the whole process and it ended up being a great interview. So I think what you see with Late Night now and Jimmy Fallon and all those shows where they're so contrived is that you have two people that are highly privileged. They're not, usually not that interesting, these starlets and stuff like that. And so if you, you have an interview that's a dud because they don't have anything interesting to say. The host is really not that interested. Whereas if you naturally bring a subject that's just so interesting, like a porn star, like a stripper, like I've had on my show, is that you take the audience on a journey of exploration with that guest and they're locked in mm. because they're on the edge of their seat. They can't believe they've never been exposed to something like that. This. And so I, my show's kind of like the antithesis of mainstream media Yeah, is that they won't talk about these subjects. It's, it's interesting that with, I think with a lot of those shows and I do try and catch bits of them. You usually see clips on YouTube because we don't really get those shows airing over here, but with, with some of them, I think the whole thing with COVID and where they couldn't have live audiences and stuff, showed to me how much the audience laughter and hype up that they get there was carrying those shows along and that yeah. we think they're funnier because people are there laughing at them whereas when you see those shows without the audience laughing along with it and being fully engaged in it you start to realize this ain't that funny <laughs> and, right yeah. and and like some of those people a la conan o'brien are fantastic comedians and were fantastic comedians and that's why they got the big uh, the gig and then it's almost like the mainstream media diluted them down to this product of overly produced contrived the band the audience the pre-rehearsed questions with the celebrity that like are forced and they took this person that was naturally great and really kind of ruined them and so what you're having is i think you're seeing people are di trying to dial that back and so you've got like you know the andrew schultzes and the tim dillons and these guys who are doing say a million downloads per episode that's very close to jimmy kimmel right. that's very close to these other shows and they are just in a room with a couch and two mics but why people are naturally drawn to it is because it's interesting and because it's real. Yeah. I, I like that. And I think it's true. People want, uh, people want the real deal more these days. I think more and more people moving towards wanting or demanding authenticity from the people that they tune into. And you're right. So many shows just can't provide that. Jordan, it, right. it's been really fun speaking to you. I know we need to let you get back to your life and not just speak to me all day because <laughs> I could quite happily carry on the conversation. But what's the best way for people to come and find out more about you when they've enjoyed listening to you today? Where can they find you? So at J Power Comedy on Instagram. I also have Twitter, but I don't really use it as much, but um, on both. And then my show's Unmentionable every Friday on all players. You can also listen to it on YouTube. If you want to read my book, it's called Famous Anus. You can grab it on Amazon. <laughs> well, can you give us one highlight from the book that we could look forward to? 
Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, the book is is basically a train wreck. It's me being uh, in my 20s with no deeply damaged, no skills to forge relationships and substance abuse problem. So you will experience 10 years of my life. I break up with my boyfriend. I check into a mental hospital. And then I get out and I sort of go on this journey to find love again. And uh, it's everything from sleeping with my boss to getting chlamydia twice in a week to going to Hollywood and going to an orgy to having anal fissure surgery, literally surgery on my butthole and documenting all that. But there is, besides all that and the wild antics, there is an arc there and there's a person that you will see grow as you read the book. And I think it's a, a lot more satisfying for the reader by the time you get to the end. But I think in the first few chapters, you'll be like, God, this guy's such a prick, but that's intentional. <laughs> it's certainly some, a, a wild roller coaster and one that I think I'm going to add to my wish list. And uh, I also have an answer today as to what do you get the man who has everything. I'm going to look up uh, Baldo and I will be sending, <laughs> sending one off to my friends who have everything because I bet they don't have that. Jordan, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking to you today. I really enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for coming and joining us uh, on Speaking of Influence. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Happy Pride Month, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, please make sure you are subscribed for future episodes and share the show with your friends and network. That really helps us. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser can also help people to find the show. If you would like to support the show and help us bring even more great contents and increase our production value and keep the show going into the future, look at the new Patreon options in the show notes. Perhaps you'd like to buy me a coffee or maybe sign up to one of our membership levels. My next guest is going to be Abby Weiss, and we're going to be talking about how she really helps people to get clarity on their professional messaging. So don't miss that or any upcoming episodes of Speaking Influence. Whatever you do, go and make good things happen. Have a great week. See you next time.